You're listening to Got Tech, the podcast with your hosts, Eric Geis and Nick Johnson. Welcome back to Got Tech, the podcast. This is episode 133 called, How Does EdTech Support Personalized Learning? In this episode, we'll define personalized learning and go over some of the many pros, cons, barriers, and benefits to this methodology. We'll also give several ideas for implementing personalized learning with the help of EdTech. This is another episode you don't want to miss. Check it out. So we just got back from the NJECC conference. We had a blast there. We did two presentations. They were pretty well received. Um, We were very, very excited about the conference because it's one of the ones that we really look forward to going to every year. It's in New Jersey and in the state in which we teach. It's a a little bit of a travel, but overall, they always treat us very well, and we are excited to go back year after year. Yeah, one of our uh, presentations was a, an old favorite, the EdTech Throwdown, but the other one we actually presented on a, a panel uh, with none other than Mr. Chris Nessie, who's got his own EdTech podcast uh, called The House of EdTech. And, you know, he's, he's an expert. The guy's a pro. We learned a lot from him at the beginning when we started this podcast. And if you've never heard his show, check it out. You can also hopefully expect a version of that panel to turn into one of our own episodes. We plan on doing a a crossover episode with Chris, hopefully in the near future, um, to sort of bring that to uh, both of our podcasts. So I'm I'm pretty pumped about that too. Yeah, it was cool to uh, see things come full circle. Uh, There's been a lot of podcasters in the podcast realm that have helped us along the way, and and Chris was definitely one of the uh, ones that got us started so that was pretty cool to to work with him this podcast is a proud member of the teach better podcast network better today better tomorrow and the podcast to get you there you can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast now let's get back to the episode all right so today we're talking about personalized learning this is a topic that is uh pretty broad but it means different things to each person you could go ask one teacher what they think personalized learning is they'll give you one answer you go to another one they'll give you a different answer and guess what neither one of them's wrong so it it just means different things and we're going to kind of go over a little bit about what personalized learning is some of the pros the cons And uh, after that, we'll get into some of the EdTech tools and projects that can help us along the way. It's a great episode because I think it's super relevant now that we're back from the pandemic. Uh, We did a lot of personalized learning or group projects, collaborative projects during COVID. uh, And I see some of them hanging around still now that we're back uh, in face-to-face instruction. I see teachers doing a lot of personalized learning, which is good to see. And, uh, you know, I think we just need to keep pushing forward on this uh, this path a little bit and explore it a little bit further. Yeah, I mean, it, for personalized learning, it's one of those things, too, where, like, the definition, you don't, you don't really need to look any further than the name itself, right? It is learning that has been personalized to, hopefully, in the most ideal sense, each individual student and the way that they learn best now is that fully possible of course not but you can build in lots of things that can get you as, as close to that goal as uh, as you can yeah and a lot of times when i think of personalized learning i also think of udl universal design for learning and this is one thing that our buddy kyle nemus uh really hits home this is one of his favorite topics to to speak about but uh when you think about it we have to get to know our kids. Our students tick differently. They're they're all different types of learners. So we got to plan for that. And, you know, when you're shopping and you have a, a list of things that you need to get for, I don't know, choose your favorite holiday where your family gathers, you need to think of all the different people coming to that meal. And you need to think about what their dietary restrictions are. 
are they lactose intolerant? Do they have a, uh, I don't know, allergy to nuts? Can they not eat peanut butter? You know, the dessert. Do we have people that like salt? Do we have people that like sweet? Do we have people that like liquid uh, dessert? You got to think about all those things. And just as uh, you think and you plan about that holiday dinner, you got to also think and plan about your classroom and how your students learn and see if you can op offer some type of choice that allows them to choose their most comfortable style of learning, whether it's video or reading or listening or whatever it may be and and go with that so that's what personalized learning is it's kind of considering all the things that make our students unique considering how they learn the best and considering their passions uh, their interests bringing it all together while tying in content and we do this all the time i know in science you know one of the the topics that I always knock on is uh, photosynthesis, right? It wasn't my favorite when I was studying biology. I actually like it more now than what I did when I was studying it, but I think it's because I always think through metaphors. And you can take a student's interest and have them make a metaphor for photosynthesis pretty successfully. So that's what I'm kind of talking about there. When I say, think about your student, try to get their their connections of life what they like to do to connect with the content so that was a that was a great intro maybe we should just get straight into some of the pros and cons here i'll take you guys through some of the the benefits of this and most of these are going to be pretty obvious and if you're a listener to our show then you know what i'm about to say already so you know things like if the learning's been customized of course maybe students can learn at their own pace Maybe they're going to be getting feedback that is specific to them or delivered in a way that is most beneficial to them. Maybe they can choose topics that interest them. And, and of course, if you're doing those things, kids are going to learn better and they're going to learn more and they're going to remember it more. One of the huge benefits here is the engagement that you're going to get with personalized learning, right? Because like we're trying to explain, if the learning has been tailored to that individual student's needs or interests, they're definitely going to be more engaged with that content, which means they're going to understand it better and they're going to take more of that away from that particular lesson or from that particular day. So you got that. The flexibility is a huge, uh, you know, positive here. If the students can learn by doing a project, if they prefer that, and then they also have the choice to learn via one-on-one -on -one instruction or from a video, that increased flexibility and adaptability is going to aid the learning process as well. In all of this, just it leads to better outcomes. You're going to see the students uh, with hopefully higher academic achievement. They're going to be more engaged in school. That's going to seem more interesting to them because it's more relatable to them. And you know, the, a similar list kind of goes on and on here. But the pros, you could sum it all up by saying, the students will learn more efficiently and they will remember more of that content in the long run because of all of those things that just naturally happen when the learning has been personalized to them. Yeah, I think that's a, they're all great points. I mean, we do need customized learning, improved engagement, flexibility, and better outcomes. Uh, all these things fit with personalized learning, but one thing I've learned from all my studies after, you know, my four, first four-year degree was that as I got up higher into the levels of classes, I realized that the way that they provide personalized learning opportunities is just being vague. They would show me a process or a theory or something like that, and then they would allow me to decide how I'm going to use that theory in education. And sometimes I think that's what we have to do uh, with our classrooms. I could teach the, the nuts and bolts about photosynthesis, but then have them choose a region of the world or a certain species of plant that goes through photosynthesis and, and let them talk about that and show their understanding of photosynthesis through something that they're interested in. And sometimes that choice is what gets them interested because they made it. They weren't prescribed something. They made a choice. 
Yeah, that's that's a great point, and you know, it's worth mentioning at the beginning here that despite all of these extremely positive outcomes, there's definitely some some cons to this that you gotta have to at least acknowledge if only to get it out of the way so you can then focus on trying to do this or as much as you can. You know, one of them just being challenges in implementation in terms of the tools you'll need. Like a lot of this uh, can be made very easy with technology that you might not have or resources, resources like uh, books that you might not have or, or just training on, on ways to do it that your school might not be able to provide. Some people will even say that there are equity concerns with personalized learning that did not exist um, prior to personalized learning, where like, you know, things that already existed like a lack of access to technology for some populations. Well, if your personalized learning relies on technology, that is going to make it harder for the students without that access to do the learning or to take part in the personalized aspect of it. So. You have to be aware of that type of thing if you start to implement choice. Do all your students have the same access to those choices? It's worth talking about. Some people have even gone so far as to say, if learning is very personalized, that can actually narrow the focus of what students are doing. In other words, if the students are constantly choosing what they want to learn about and how they want to learn it, then that's the only thing they ever get exposed to. So that's the, the idea behind a more narrow focus. Um, the other thing is just, you know, privacy issues. This one's sort of more on the IT side, but you got to talk about it. You know, if kids are using tech to support the different ways that they can learn or what they can learn, then you've got to be aware that there's lots of bad stuff that can happen in terms of data collection and companies collecting data on kids and all that stuff. So all of those things for sure are some of the cons here, but I would you know, encourage people to think about each one of those if you just pay attention to it and build in little checks, uh, like an equity check for every lesson you do or project that is personalized, make sure all your students have access to those things and the equity concern is diminished. And if you're worried about you know, kids only ever learning about the same topic or in the same way, require them for some of your personalized learning experiences to choose a different method because maybe that will be good for them in some way or they may even like it more if they're constantly going back and you know watching video lessons rather than paying attention in class and that's just all they ever do you might want to force them one time to not use the video uh, to read an article about it, and they might get something different out of that. So just being aware of all these things is, is kind of the point. It's good to throw them a curveball because, as we kind of covered before, uh, you know, one of the things I believe in is making kids uncomfortable at times because when they're uncomfortable, they want to fight back the status quo. They want to fight back to norm, and that fight back is where they learn. That's the area in which they learn. Going along with some of your cons of personalized learning, there are also some barriers that we need to talk about, and some of these overlap, and that's okay, because I'm gonna kind of look at them in a different light. The first one is limited resources. Uh, I remember, it's probably been about 10 years now since we went one-to-one, -one, but uh, I was one of the ones that piloted our Chromebooks, uh, actually one-to-one -one devices before Chromebooks uh, I piloted, and I only had enough for 12 kids. My classes were 24 deep. I only had enough for 12 kids, so I had to find ways of being creative that allowed students to have equal amounts of time uh, with these devices. Sometimes I would just put them in pairs and that was easy, but sometimes I did things like, you know, I was teaching 12 kids while the other 12 kids were doing an activity back on whatever device it was. Uh, sometimes I got creative and I said, okay, Today, these 12 are on the devices. These 12, you may use your cell phone. And I know back then that was like a big no-no, but I didn't care. I felt like it was my classroom. It wasn't putting students in danger. It was allowing us to get what we needed to get done, and we just rolled with it. So limited resources, sometimes you have to be a little creative. That could be seen as a barrier to personalized learning. You have teacher training. My biggest thing is, is if you're not doing personalized learning now, don't try to change your whole curriculum at once. Just keep it small. 
right, personalized uh, learning does not need to happen overnight. It's good to mix up uh, formats. Even now, sometimes I lecture from time to time, depending on the needs of students. So sometimes they prefer that, especially when we're doing review or something along those lines. All right, so don't feel afraid to just take one unit next year in your PLCs, work it out, make sure it's solid, and then implement it. And then the next year you could do a different unit, or maybe you're doing one like chapter per quarter that you're making personalized learning, the, the focal instruction of that, but you don't need to do everything overnight. I know you and I, when we got into the flip classroom, we tried to make it happen overnight, and we did a lot of high-quality things at the beginning, and then we realized that our quality of instruction, because we were rushing and really burnt out from it, you know, came down a little bit. So what we ended up doing is just tabling it for the rest of that year, working on the projects over the summer, and making it very, very strong. So uh, with teacher training, start small and uh, implement in small chunks. Uh, the next one is the cultural resistance. Now, what I mean by this is it's a different way of, of learning for students, but it's also seen as a different type of teaching for parents and maybe some administrators and school board members. So a couple of things that we could do here to help with that is, one, educate. So talk with the school board, present the school board, present to your administrators, invite them into your classrooms, show them what you're doing, that way they're on board and they understand what exactly personalized learning is. You can never assume that they know because for some administrators, they haven't been in the classroom for 15 years. All right, and it's a lot, lot has changed. So some people, I know, once again, going back to blended learning, flipped classroom at the very beginning, I had parents email me say that I wasn't teaching because I was making them watch my, my lectures at home and then when they got in, we were working with whatever they watched and they they saw that as me not teaching so i had to invite them in so they could see what the classroom looked like and once once uh they saw that they were like all right this is kind of cool i can i can vibe with this this is teaching great and you you should know too that if you're trying to implement this and you're expecting some resistance from your students or admin or parents uh, take heart that you've got mountains of educational research behind you that says this type of learning is is better and um, you know can be more efficient in terms of time and you know all all outcomes are more positive when it comes to personalized learning so if you're afraid of that or if you are trying to think of a way to to pitch this to your school um, you know, the, the evidence is on your side. So you, you can and should share that and be prepared to share that if it's ever questioned. And I think that's maybe just like a nice safety net for teachers to be aware of. Yeah, let's try something a little different. We never asked anyone to just stop and think for a second. And you can pause the podcast, but um, think about your curriculum. Think about the topic that you hate teaching the most or you think is very boring for the students. And, and think about what you could do to personalize your learning there. How can, how can you start with what the students know and then finish with them like really hitting the ground running on a, on a topic that they enjoy? Uh, case in point is when I did environmental studies in, in college, one of the first things that we did is we learned about relationships, symbiotic relationships uh, in ecology. And, and to be honest with you, I didn't really know what that was. Like, it's just when two organisms live together, whether it's a positive for both organisms, a negative for both organisms, or, you know, just mutual, um, or positive for one and negative for the other. And I didn't really know a lot about that. That topic was introduced, and then the teacher allowed us to go, and we went to Longwood Gardens, and then we had to find, it was like a scavenger hunt, a natural scavenger hunt of an example of any of these types of relationships. But we got to pick which building we were in. Is it the indoor plants? Is it outdoor? Are we talking insects? Are we talking flowers? Are we talking a cross between those? So we had a lot of room to go to. So just stop and think about how you can 
implement personalized learning into your classroom for a second because we're about ready to get into some things that are going to help you generate a structured, organized, and supported personalized classroom. So that's, I think, the perfect segue to get into our third and final segment here, which is the some hopefully more concrete examples for how you could do this. We've got some low prep things that you could probably do like tomorrow. We've got some high prep things that are gonna take you a longer time to think about and plan and implement. And we wanted to do that on purpose, just to really show you as many ways as possible without you know, a five hour long podcast, which honestly we could easily do on this topic. Uh, to help get you started, or if, if you're already doing personalized learning, to help you consider some ways that it can be better. Yeah, so our first bit here is basically how you structure your classroom. One thing that I would recommend is having some type of a curated resource library. All right, what I mean by that is we often use ed tech tools or programs, educational programs, or certain teaching methods like note-taking, things like that. Well, sometimes students forget, especially after long breaks or whatever, they, they're just not confident that they remember how to do something. So if you provide them with a curated list of guides, like, all right, here's uh, Canva tutorials, here's Canva Design School, here's InSpot. All right, InSpot is a tool that I recently found that allows you to take notes from YouTube videos or podcasts very easily. They have phone apps, both Android and Apple, and they have a web version. So when I go to a YouTube video and, and someone asks me a question and I collect these throughout the year, you know, how do I do this in WeVideo? There's a question that they ask, so I go. Rather than me making my own video, if I know that there's a good video resource there, I could go find where it is in the video and make a little note tag there. And when you make a little note tag there, you could say, this is the answer to your question on how to do X, Y, and Z. Uh, let me know if you have any questions. And then you share it. And what that does is it takes them to this landing page uh, on InSpot where that video is and your note tag is there. And it allows them to play it right from where you want them to play the video where their answer is. So if you start using that to curate this big wide list of resources, by the end of the year, you're gonna have a whole bunch for you to use next year. And you could sh you know, share this list out with your class, with your students, uh, maybe put them all on a website. Like uh, I know Canva has a one page website that's pretty awesome. We still have Google sites. We have other sites that teachers use to run their classrooms. Put them on there, let them know where it's at that way, before they come ask you, they can go there and see what they need is answered on that website. Yeah, and you know the website thing, that's probably, I don't know if this is the best advice for everyone, uh, but for me it was getting started with personalized learning, what meant for every single lesson that I do, kids can go to my website and find a recorded version of that lesson. They can find the handouts that go along with it that they can print on their own when they have time. Uh, they can make their own digital copy of those handouts and fill them out electronically. They can find textbook pages that go along with that lesson. There's all those things there for every single day of every class of the entire year. That, in a way, is personalized learning only if you actually use it and I say that because I've seen a lot of teachers who build out a website but never really use it never mention it they never direct the kids back to it and then wonder why those resources are not used I probably say twice a day to kids that are absent or to kids that are struggling or kids asking what are we doing in class today I just keep saying throughout the entire year check the website check the website check the website if I get the question, I need a copy of the reference sheet for the Unit 7 test, check the website. And if you do that enough, um, 
kids will use it. They need those reminders. And then that website develops a life of its own and becomes a tool that is actually used and is super, super powerful. Um, another thing is when it comes to curating and that I thought kind of fit here is choice boards. We've talked a lot about them, the typical three by three grid. That's personalized learning almost you know, to its core because the whole idea being, here's a bunch of options uh, on this three by three grid of things you can learn about or ways you can learn a certain topic, build in as many of those as you can. We had a training a few weeks back and there was a world language teacher who said, it was actually a, a co-teacher, and she wanted some help getting started uh, making her own choice boards because the teacher she was working with runs every single lesson of almost the entire year with choice boards. So that's taking it to the extreme example, but imagine that every single day when the kids walk in, here's your choice board for today, there's nine options. Uh, you know, be ready to turn something in or report back or whatever those things are. It can even be like a quick, you know, 10 minute activity if you wanted it to be. But every single lesson of every day has a choice board. That's a lofty goal, but what a cool thing to start working on now or plan to start working on for next year. Maybe you do one unit that way where it's just all choice boards, see how it goes. Maybe there's things you like, things you don't. Either way, you're gonna be personalizing, personalizing that learning for the kids for sure. Um, two tech things here though, guys, if you are gonna do some choice boards, slidesmania.com, one of our favorite websites for slides presentations, PowerPoint and Google Slides. They've got a bunch of choice board templates as well. They have a ton of stuff. If you've not checked it out, check it out. But their choice boards are not your typical three by three grid. They kind of take it to the next level. The beautiful part is a lot of the hard work and the, the beautification of it has been done for you. There's another really cool site I found called d4learning.com. That uh, link is gonna be in the show notes. d4learning.com has a whole collection of choice board templates as do many, many, many other teachers, including us on gottech.com for things that you can just use now so you don't have to make them yourself. So choice boards, easy, easy way to personalize that learning. All right, so our first thing there is curation. Curation of resources and having a hub of where to find everything. So that organization is, is pretty cool. All right, our next big thing, and I mean this is monumental, and I don't really care if this is personalized learning or blended learning or whatever type of learning that you're doing. The next one is probably the most important piece when it comes to student learning, and that is feedback. I have a bunch of different ways that you can collect feedback, give feedback that I'm going to go over real quick, uh, but make feedback a priority. How do you give feedback right now? Think about it. I mean, this is probably something the new teacher struggles because uh, I kind of I kind of lump in question asking with feedback, right? Because being a good, you know, question tier, I don't know, questionographer. <laughs> there you go. There we go. I'm making up words today. This is phenomenal. I love it. All right. But being able to ask the question in a certain way to get students to think a certain way is another way of, of giving feedback. So I, I lump these two together. So questioning is the first one, obviously. The next one is having them do self-reflection. Encourage your students to reflect on their own learning progress. Have them make a journal. It could just be as simple as, what did you do today? What did you learn today? What's the take-home message? Uh, it could be something like that. That journaling is really another option for that. It would be to make a blog. Or I have a student right now using Screencastify, even though I tried to get them to use Screencast-O-Matic. Uh, Screencastify is an awesome tool too, but uh, what he's doing is he's doing a vlog every day. It's 30, 30 seconds of what he learned during that, that class period. And he does it for each period and then he watches them right before he goes to class the next day. And he says it helps him a lot to get focused, to get back into the zone and be ready to pay attention. You can use Canvas sites, Google sites, WordPress uh, has a free version that you could use. All these are great for blogging uh, and having students do like their e-portfolio, things like that. Uh, some other things that you could have them do under self-reflection is the self-evaluation, checklists, rubrics. 
you know, they handed in a project or they're about ready to, well, go back to the rubric. And I like to put checklists on my, my rubric. I tell them if you could do the checklist and it's incorporated in, in your project correctly, you, you have yourself a C. All right. So that's probably the lowest grade that you'll get on that. And that's if things are very, very sloppy, but basic checklists, uh, you know, that will help them. Uh, then they could also do some self-assessments as well. So sometimes I like to give them practice tests where they can self-assess themselves on what they know and what they don't. So that's all under the self-reflection category. The next one is peer feedback. And I feel like recently this has kind of gone out the window. I remember growing up in English class, we had a due date of our rough draft having to be done. We had to let three of our peers read our rough draft, make changes, make edits, make suggestions, and then go on from there. I don't feel like we do that nearly as much now. And I feel some of it is because of feeling afraid of hurting someone's feelings. Like we don't know how to deal with that. And I think that's part of, you know, what makes the transition into the work uh, field very, very difficult for some kids is because we're not giving them that hard criticism back. We're not allowing our peers to evaluate their work. Uh, they need to be able to, to take criticism. I think it's a valuable skill that they should learn. And I think peer feedback is a great way of doing that. In order to make it successful, you have to invest time in modeling this. Let them know how they need to give feedback to one another. Let them know that it's, you know, this isn't to put anyone down, but it's really to build up a community within your class and uh, really help one another. I get some of the best ideas from our, our staff members that review what we do, the stuff that we create. We get awesome recommendations that help us take it to the next level. I think that's super important for kids. Yeah, so there's the peer feedback that, that you're right. I think we need to sort of get back into that uh, in, a, in this post-COVID world where you can actually do it again. You can sit side by side and talk. Same thing with teacher feedback. And one of the, my favorite ways to do it is the individual conference where you literally are sitting there while students are working and you say, uh, hey, Sammy, come on up here. Let's take a look at what you've been working on. And you just go through it together. Um, you know, the, I don't know if it's easier, but you in other ways that written comment right if you're using rubrics that a rubric is feedback ideally if you're using that rubric you want to maybe allow time for revision based on that feedback if you just use the rubric to give a grade that's fine and that's how they can be used but even more powerful if you score them on the rubric and say here's where you're at now if in the next week you can revise this, shoot me an email to let me know when you've done it, I'll go back and reassess your assignment or your project using that rubric and we'll see how much better you did or how much more you learned or whatever it is. So that's very powerful. There's obviously a ton of EdTech tools that can help you with this teacher feedback. Moat is one of our favorite extensions where if you're leaving uh, comments in like Google Docs or Google Slides, those comments can be made uh, in an audio sense using your microphone and you talking. And then your students can just click and listen to your voice so they can hear your tone and they know that you're being helpful and not just, you know, trying to tear down what they're doing. Uh, you know, the classic text Google commenting is great too. Presenter notes, actually, if you've got a, a slide deck, that little space beneath the slide where you typically We'll type out notes to yourself for when you're presenting. That's actually a great place to leave feedback or have students leave feedback on each other's slides if we bring this back to the peer feedback world. Classic tools like Kami are phenomenal at leaving teacher feedback digitally to kind of replicate that, uh, you know, the way we used to give feedback, which is writing things on a piece of paper and handing it back out can do that in Kami. Floop is another one, especially for the math and science people where students are submitting pictures of their handwritten work and then the teacher can see that and comment on it in real time. So there's lots of ways to do this teacher feedback and you know, I'll kind of tie that in with technology-based feedback that does the work for you. Does the feedback for you like Google Forms can, you know, besides just grading student responses to stuff, 
you can actually have a Google form give specific feedback when students get it wrong. That queues up a, a, a link to a certain thing. All of your gamification tools like Quizzes and Quizzalize and Bluekit and Kahoot, all of these things also can be used to give that feedback, even if it's as simple as letting students know, ooh, I didn't get it correct. What do I do now to fix that problem? Throw GimKit in there as well. So there's tons of tech that can make this a whole lot easier for you when it comes to those feedback components. Yeah, so, so far we covered questioning, we covered uh, self-reflection, peer feedback, teacher feedback, some of the technology-based tools that provide feedback. I think the last one we need to briefly mention is goal setting and encourage your students to set goals, long-term goals for the course, short-term goals for the individual chapters or units or topics, or however you do it, and help them revisit those throughout different parts of the year uh, through these teacher-led feedback sessions. All right, so goal setting has to be there as well. All right, so the last two things that, or last couple of things that we have for you today, uh, we want to talk a little bit about creative-based uh, learning. So these are the projects that has to do with uh, being creative. It's kind of like passion projects, but you could easily tie in content with that. And then we'll get into a little bit of game-based learning uh, ideas as well as just like a wrap up of general personalized learning activities that we've done in our classroom. So if you want your students to remember something from your class long term, and you know, I always use the example of, you know, I'm a chem teacher. I, I know very well kids are not going to be 45 years old and thinking back to the day where I taught them about Stoichiometry. Yeah, stoichiometry. And they're going to, they will absolutely not be able to say stoichiometry is blank and you do it like this. It's just no way. It's, that doesn't make sense. No, it's not long, what long term learning is. And we, we, I don't think we should even aspire to that because it's just impossible. But they will remember, and this is, I think, what you want besides skills, things, uh, skill based things, and just being a lifelong learner. They will remember stuff where they had an emotional, connection. And the best way to establish that, especially if you're like me, a chem teacher, and you're thinking, what do emotions have to do with it? They can get that emotional connection by you building in projects where they can think creatively. That's where they will, if their brain can take control and, you know, choose some of the aspects of that in a creative way, they're going to have an emotional connection and they're going to remember it today. I don't remember really anything from high school except the projects where I got to think creatively. And that's what you want to try and encourage. I came up with one random example, um, just as something a little different, tying in artificial intelligence, all the, you know, the chat bots that are out there right now and the image generators, just because it's kind of buzzing. Here's something that just sort of I came up with in a couple minutes time. There's a AI site called DAL-E. We talked about it a few episodes back and DAL-E is an image generator. You can go there and type in weird prompts like show me a picture of a poodle on the planet Venus wearing a top hat. And it'll do it. It'll make a bunch of versions of that. It's kind of cool. You could send students to a site like this and have each student in the class generate a random image of their choice. I would recommend having them all connected in some way. Like you could say, create any image you want, but all of them have to have the poodle, right? So whatever you want your poodle to be doing fine. So the kids have fun, you let them play around, they can do as many versions as they want. But at the end of that time period, every kid comes up with their own image of this AI created poodle doing something weird or in a strange spot, whatever they want. Then maybe you print them out, or if you don't want to do the printing, you could just have them digitally share it in like a slide deck that everybody has access to. And then as a group, or you as the teacher, are going to take those images and arrange them in some sort of an order. It doesn't have to make any sense at all, and that order could be completely random, but some kind of an order. Uh, so maybe the first picture is the poodle swimming in a pool that, you know, Sammy came up with. Then the second image is the poodle on planet Jupiter that a different student came up with. The final component to the project is the students have to maybe write a story that explains 
what was going on with this poodle to take it through this series of pictures. There's multiple levels of creativity there, and this obviously fits, you know, this fits easiest in a, an English class where the kids are just focusing on the writing and on the creative writing, but you could tie this into any subject area if you require that the story they write has something to do with the content you're teaching. Or me as a science teacher, if I request that the image they are, um, you know, the image they develop from the beginning has to have a water molecule in it, then that's gonna allow me to tie in the science. So you can think about how to modify that for your own, but just imagine how fun and interesting that would be. And then imagine that, you know, who knows, maybe 20 years down the road, I'm almost 30 years out of high school now, and I still remember projects where I got to be creative. My freshman year, everybody had to design a kite. In our world history class, we were learning about, uh, I forget the, you know, the exact festival, but um, some kite festival that some country does, and we did our own little mini kite festival. I still remember like individual meetings with my partner where we got to build this kite together. And, and that's what you're trying to, to do, and I think that's the stuff that lasts, and, and creativity can get you there. Yeah, I think you just landed your plane right there because you don't remember, you, you talked about stoichiometry and not being able to remember it, but now you don't remember the exact kite festival, but you remember building the kite. And I have one of those, like everyone has one of those examples. Sure. I, I remember in my English class, uh, we just got done taking, I don't know if it was an AP exam or whatever, but we had three weeks left of school. And uh, our, our teacher let us know that we were going to have a three-week period in which we had to either find a way to bring light onto a charity or, or an organization of our interests, or we had to host an event. So I challenged myself to do both. I really like sports. I really liked charity and I really liked uh, making stuff happen. So I remember like calling up one of the local radio stations and getting them to come out and play, uh, I think it was basketball against us. Now the funny thing is, is you could definitely tell who the ringers were and who the, the jockeys were, the disc jockeys. <laughs> Do we right. even call them disc jockeys anymore? Yeah, I think so. I don't know. But anyway, uh, they came out, and there's this one seven-foot guy, and I was like, "There's no way that you're sitting and uh, behind the mic." He goes, "He goes, no, no, I work there as an engineer. I make sure that everything is good." He goes, "The best part about me is I don't need a ladder to get to the high servers." And I was like, "I don't know what you're talking about, <laughs> but you're seven foot tall. I'm five foot tall, and I believe you." But we played, uh, it was a faculty basketball game, but they allowed the students to go in for the third quarter, which was pretty cool. And uh, the seven foot guy told me, I'm gonna hold the ball and act like I'm shooting. You block me right now. And I, I just remembered that because I was a very short kid. Very, very short. I think I was, my senior year, I was five foot four is what I topped out at. And uh, I'm guarding the seven foot tall giant and he allows me to stuff him. He goes, but you have to make a big scene out of it, otherwise it's not worth it. So I just remember uh, as he went up for a layup, he kind of started at his hip and I just swatted the ball. And then I just started going into a muscle pose. Oh yeah, you know, I remember that. I remember that project because I was able to have a little creativity. I was challenged to do something. That's the stuff that we need to keep bringing in here because, you know, I learned a lot about, um, you know, service learning and things like that. And I think that we can't just totally dismiss that as part of education. All right, so let's hop into the next one, which is game-based learning. You and I have already talked about these the tools that give us instant feedback, um, such as the Kahoot, the Blukits, the uh, Game Kits, all that. Uh, we could add another one here, which is Flippity. Flippity has a bunch of scoreboards and things like that. And I use that for when I incorporate Survivor or you incorporate Amazing Race, get those current event topics in there and then you can hide content underneath those. It's just the umbrella of keeping interest using those game elements. And uh, we talked about a QR themed scavenger hunt using Google Docs slides or a built-in QR reader 
and creator in Chrome. So that's another way of game, gamifying your classroom and really tailoring to the needs of the students and how their, their interests um, can help drive them. Think about what our students do a lot of. They're on their phones gaming, they're at home gaming, they're communicating through gaming. A lot of the kids' socialization outside of school now is through a headset playing a game. All right, so let's use that to our advantage. All right, so I know I rushed through those a little bit, but we've talked about those, you know, before, but it does have a valuable place in there. So our last segment is, uh, or the last portion of the segment is other personalized learning activities. And uh, I know that you do a lot of these, so why don't you start us off? Yeah, with the um, the scavenger hunt thing too, it, you know, I've for a long time been doing these QR scavenger hunts where there's different codes around the room and the kids have to scan them. And like most of these things, after you do it for a few years, even though it's pretty cool, uh, I get bored with it. And this is you know, just me as the teacher who sees it happen over and over. So something I've been thinking about recently is taking that, and this is a, a great way to personalize anything is always think how can you flip it on the kids and get them engaged in that process so I'm right now trying to figure out how I can do a scavenger hunt and for some reason my head is stuck on like a school-wide scavenger hunt where it doesn't really even relate to like a class but there's just this like this large-scale school-wide scavenger hunt thing that all the kids are just trying to to solve and do and there's clues around the school that if they find them they can solve them and um, you know, imagine that, but then imagine you're not the one making it. Imagine your students are making it together. Imagine that QR code scavenger hunt, but where the class itself develops it so that you spend a day, each kid on their own Google Doc comes up with a question that needs to be answered and they type it out and then they make the QR code from that doc and they print it out and they post it around the room and then the following day everybody comes in and solves it together the personalization there is ratcheted up. The uh, creativity is ratcheted up because they had to come up with it. They're learning other skills like how to make a QR code, which is an important thing because they're everywhere today. It just becomes way more valuable and engaging and they're probably gonna remember it more too. Plus the buy-in in that they know that other students will be looking at the challenge or the question that they wrote. So there's lots of little things like that. Um, it could be as simple as taking an assignment that you already do, like for me, a lab report and saying, for this lab report, you're gonna make it in Canva out of only images. No words at all, show me the lab analysis here using just images and maybe I allow them to use numbers as well so they can show the data, right? That's super creative. It's personalized because they can take that in a thousand different directions and um, it's, it's just going to have that much more of a punch to it. I've talked a lot too about the Chemistry Connections podcast that my AP Chem students do, which is really just a passion project where they choose something that they're interested in. Uh, last year I got sunscreen because the kids are focused on going to the, you know, going to the shore at, uh, as it gets to the end of the year. And they explained to me the chemistry of sunscreen in a podcast episode and uh, you know a little brief written thing. So there's just a ton of ways that you can, you can tie in, give the students this level of choice and make these really powerful projects. Yeah, one of my favorite projects that I did with my students uh, was in my bioethics class. Uh, one of the big units that we take care of in their cover is the environment. So what I had them do is pick any environmental topic that needs light shed on it. All right. One of the ones that I remember is uh, seal clubbing. This is something that really upset someone, and to be honest with you, it upset me when I was viewing her project. Uh, it's upsetting. I, yeah, so basically, uh, I think if I remember correctly, after six days old, a seal can be harvested for whatever they use, I guess the skin, I'm not yeah, sure. I think the fur probably, but I don't know. Yeah, so um, six days old, I mean, how can you tell that a, club, a seal is uh, six days old? Well, anyway, anyway, let me get back to the, the project here. Uh, what they had to do is they had to pick a topic, 
They had to pick a whole bunch of pictures that they could find on that topic, and each slide had one fact on it about it. They had to also cite their source, um, but it, each slide had one sentence or one fact or one graph that kind of had like a trend outlined on it, something like that on each slide, and there had to be 30 to 50 slides and I had to cover one song. So they had to find a song that kind of set the mood. And I always use the example, Sarah McLachlan's uh, Arms of an Angel. You know, they, they do that dog commercial. Right. That makes you feel very horrible at the end. <laughs> but, it, you know, it pulls on the heartstrings a little bit. But I told them it had to fit the mood of whatever they're talking about. So this girl, I think she chose the song Skinny Love. Um, I challenge you to sing it right now. I don't even know the song. What is it? Hello, skinny love. (laughs) I mean, sorry about that. Uh, Somebody capture that little bit of audio. Uh, Put that on recording. (laughs) Put it in your basement. You'll never have a rat problem again. Nice. Um, But yeah, so they use that song. It's a very sad, like, song. And, I mean, it was a very powerful project. You know, they did things... Uh, later on, I opened it up to other areas as well. Um, one did like um, child soldiers, another one did human trafficking. I mean, it's anything that needed a little bit of light shed on it. We need to be educated a little bit more about it. And uh, they did an awesome job. These things turned out great. And this is before we had things like we video and stuff. They were doing this on a slide uh, PowerPoint presentation and putting the the music to it and allowing it to auto you know go to the next slide right and, and that's pretty much it and it was very effective way and it's something that they come back and talk to me about a lot i get this when students come back and visit me this is one of the things that they always talk about yeah so all of this stuff if you're getting this sense is is worth it and It'll have lots of payoff in the long run, even if it only kind of helps your kids connect to your class uh, a little bit more deeply and in the long run. And we think for sure the learning is gonna deepen as well. That wraps it up for this episode of Got Teched. If you could do us some favors, subscribing uh, on Apple preferably, but you can do that on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher. Uh, YouTube would be great too. You can find us on YouTube if you look up Got Tech the podcast. We've got a whole channel there full of videos. On Twitter, you can find me at Nick Got Teched or Eric at Geist Got Teched or the show at We Got Teched. If you really like us or if you don't, you could write a review on Apple and tell us about it. Check us out on our website, gottech.com, for episodes, blogs, free resources, and tons of other stuff. You can also find us on the Teach Better website because we are a part of an awesome podcast network called the Teach Better Podcast Network, which is full of not only us, but lots of other really awesome education podcasts. Thanks for listening.